Calvin's view of justification by faith alone. Martin Luther called justification by faith alone the article upon which the church stands or falls. He said, you will not find true peace until you find it and keep it in this, that Christ takes all your sins upon himself and bestows all his righteousness on you. I begin this paper on Calvin's view of justification with a quote by Martin Luther, simply to make the point that Luther and Calvin held the same view of justification by faith alone. Calvin may have explained it more clearly and worked out its implications more consistently than Luther, who was always prone to exaggeration, but both men agreed on the fundamental doctrine of the gospel. John Calvin said that justification, as we saw yesterday, is the main hinge, sounds like Luther, the main hinge on which Christianity turns. For unless you first grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety toward God. Wherever the knowledge of justification by faith alone is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, Christianity is abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Therefore, Calvin, as Luther before him, did not consider justification a side issue or a secondary issue, but one that was at the heart of the Bible's gospel. R.C. Sproul explains the reason for its importance. Justification is important not merely because the church stands or falls on it. It is important because on it we stand or fall. The place where and the time when we will either stand or fall is at the judgment seat of God. The doctrine of justification has to do with our status before the just judgment of God. Now, there's more in these lectures than we'll have time uh, to talk about, so we're going to skip around, but I hope that sometime you'll take time to read these entire lectures. They're longer than can be given in an hour. In a very real sense, justification by faith was the central issue of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Roman Catholicism teaches that the formal cause of justification is infused righteousness. That is, it's not something God, de- the justification is not something God declares about you. It is something that God does in you. He does not declare you righteous. He infuses into you righteousness. Here Morton Smith gives us a helpful uh, description of what the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is. The soul is made holy by the operation of the Holy Spirit through baptism. This infused righteousness banishes the nature of sin and enables the sinner to perform good works. This infusion of righteousness, this making righteous, is what Rome defines as justification, not a forensic act of declaring us accepted as righteous. In virtue of the infused grace, a person is able to do good works and to merit an increase of grace, initially imparted to the sinner by baptism, and attainment of eternal life for those who persevere therein. Thus, justification is considered to be progressive in character by Rome. Not just one decision and declaration by God, 
but a progressive thing that begins with baptism, that proceeds by meriting more and more of God's grace until it's completed in, at, uh, uh, on Judgment Day unless you apostatize or commit a moral act, immoral act, mortal sin in between. Do you realize that uh, you can be a believer in the Roman Catholic system? You can be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and go to hell if you commit a mortal sin. So that the people in hell are not only those who are rebels against God, they include true believers in Jesus who committed a sin that the Roman Catholic Church says cannot be forgiven. Second, justification, according to Rome, is not complete until the person is wholly sanctified, that is, fully made righteous. Not until full satisfaction is made by temporal punishment, either in this life or in purgatory, for all post-baptismal sins is a person fully justified. In other words, after you're baptized, uh, any sin you commit has to be atoned for by you. You have to endure some uh, temporal punishment, some uh, chastisement by the church, and you have to merit the forgiveness of further sins after baptism. Only when a person is released from purgatory, that is hundreds of thousands of years burning, does he have full justification? That's a wonderful system of doctrine, don't you? By the way, if you come to my house, there's a little table right to the right of my front door. And if you touch that little table, it'll get you 100,000 years off purgatory. Because it belonged to Stonewall Jackson's sister. <laughs> now, turn over to page 209. 209, and let's see what the Protestant view of justification is. According to Calvin, man is said to be justified in God's sight, who is both reckoned or counted righteous in God's judgment and has been accepted by God on account of his, God's righteousness, credited to him. Now he is justified, who is reckoned, counted, uh, in the condition not of a sinner, but of a righteous man. And for that reason, he stands firm before God's judgment seat while all sinners fall. Justified by faith is he who, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith and clothed in it, appears in God's sight not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. Therefore, we explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. Let me explain it with a, with a simple little illustration so that you can have clear before your eyes what the Protestants and Calvin meant by justification. Uh, this hand is, is the sinner. This hand is Christ. This heavy, dark book is the sinner's sins. Those sins are loading him down and separating him from God. So God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to die as a substitutionary sacrifice, taking our sins upon himself, the one thing that separates us from God, and bearing those sins away. But then we stand in and of ourselves, though our sins are forgiven before God, still unworthy of living in God's presence. 
So the moment we believe, not only do we find forgiveness, but God takes righteousness. A good thing I brought a clean handkerchief this morning. Sort of clean, but the, uh, so God takes Christ's perfect righteousness and clothes us with it. And it's on the basis of that righteousness now that God has, has, can accept us into his family. So to put simply, justification takes, it, it takes place when you believe in Jesus and not one moment before. And in that moment, God forgives you of all your sins and credits to your account the righteousness of Christ, thus making it possible for him to accept you into his family, not because you believe, not because of anything you did, but solely because of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose perfect life and atoning death are credited to your account just as if you lived that perfect life and just as if you died that atoning death. Now that is the Reformed doctrine of justification as over against the Roman Catholic view that says when you are baptized with water, God gives you or puts in your life a certain amount of grace and righteousness that makes it possible for you to continue to do good works and thereby merit and earn more grace and more righteousness. And then you go to purgatory where you burn for a few hundred thousand years to become completely righteous. And then after that, you go to heaven when you die. All right, page 210. Did y'all get get a book when you came in? 210, the six basic elements of justification by faith according to Calvin and the Bible. Number one, justification is a legal declaration by a judge. Calvin said to justify means nothing else than to acquit of guilt him who was accused as if his innocence were confirmed. So understand when we talk about justification, we're not talking about something God does in us. Justification is not something God does to you. It's not something he does in you. Justification is something the judge of the universe declares about you. You stand in the court of heaven. You're accused of being guilty of breaking God's law. The judge before whom you stand declares you not guilty and in full conformity with the law. That's an irreversible, irrevocable, or irrevocable, whichever you want, decision by the judge. And that is the basis of your eternal salvation. It is a forensic act. It is a declaration of a judge. That's very important because Rome does not believe that. Justification, nor does the federal vision. Justification is a term of the courtroom. It is the legal declaration of a judge pronouncing one charge with a crime not guilty and in conformity with the law. It is not the declaration of a father or a doctor or a sovereign, but of a judge. In justification, God acts as a judge, just as in adoption, he acts as a father. Many biblical passages can be brought forward to prove this this point. 
and to show that to justify does not mean to make righteous or to infuse righteousness, as Roman Catholicism teaches, but to legally declare righteous. For instance, Proverbs seventeen fifteen says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. If the word justifies in this verse means make righteous, the verse is absurd. How could making the wicked righteous be an abomination to the Lord? God makes wicked people righteous by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The proverb is not concerned with making evil people good because such a thing is beyond human ability. The contrast in the proverbs is between he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous. And the person who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The contrast in this proverb reveals the definition of the word justify. When the word is used in such a contrast with condemn, it means to declare righteous. So then the point is that declaring a wicked person and a, a, a wicked person righteous and a righteous person wicked is an abominable action of a judge before the Lord. Bottom of 211. Although I hope you read the stuff in between someday. Although justification is a legal and judicial declaration by God that takes place outside of us and in the courtroom of heaven, it is not to be abstracted from our lives as believers as if it were irrelevant to our everyday experience in this world. Rush Dooney has written, justification is a legal act. Justification by faith is a matter of life. When we speak of justification, we must recognize that this legal act by the sovereign God has moral and personal consequences for man. Where there is no justification, there's no condemnation. When the living God who made every atom of man's being declares a man to be legally justified, then every atom of that man's being is alive with this freedom from sin and death and penalties thereof. Then man's conscience and being reflect not condemnation, but justification. Then too, the calling of and the responsibilities under God previously denied are now assumed and discharged in terms of a growing sanctification. In any court of law, to be transferred from legal guilt to legal righteousness is a tremendous fact of life. It is totally so in God's supreme court of law and life. Justification by faith is thus a fact of life because it is an act of God's absolute court of law. Certainly there is no abstractionism when we first encounter the great declaration, the just shall live by faith. The second basic of Calvin and the Bible's understanding of justification is that justification is not just a legal declaration, it's a legal declaration by God. We always assume that, but we don't always emphasize it. And as a result, we neglect a very important part of the doctrine. It's a legal declaration by God. Here's what Calvin said. Our discourse is concerned with the justice, not of a human court, but of a heavenly tribunal. Lest we measure by our own small measure the integrity of works needed to satisfy the divine judgment. Next page. Justification is an act and declaration of God, not a declaration by man. The Bible is emphatic. Romans 3.26, God is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Romans 8.33 and 34, 
who will bring a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? The point of the question in this text is that condemnation by God is an utter impossibility for all those whom God has justified. It is legally and morally absurd to think that God would ever condemn those whom he has declared righteous and accepted in Christ. Satan, the world, the church, and our own consciences can bring charges against us. But none of them will stand because God has justified us. In the justification of the believer, God acts and speaks as the judge of the human race before whom everyone must someday stand. Our doctrine has to do with our status and our standing before the judgment bar of God, not of man. God is a God of perfect justice, and all of his decisions and pronouncements are infallibly righteous. Abraham confessed his faith in the righteous judgment of Jehovah when he asked, knowing full well the answer, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? All of his decisions are reflections of his righteous character and in perfect conformity to his righteous law. Justification is something God does in the courtroom of heaven. It's not a subjective experience in man. It's not a decision man makes about himself. It's not an assessment man makes about man. Calvin makes the point that if human beings understood that their standing with God is not determined by any human court, but of a heavenly tribunal, they would not be so quick to offer their own good works as the basis of their acquittal before God. They would begin to see that their small measure of good works would in no way satisfy God's judgment. God's justice is so perfect, nothing will or can be admitted in his court that is not in complete accord with his law and that is not completely undefiled by any moral corruption. As Calvin said, and he did have a sense of humor, as the shady, in the shady cloisters of the schools, anyone can easily and readily pratter about the value of works in justifying men. But when we come before the presence of God, we must put away such amusements. Thirdly, according to Calvin in the Bible, justification brings two blessings with it. Calvin says justification is the gracious acceptance by God and forgiveness of sins. William Charles Robinson of Old Columbia Seminary used to say that when Christ comes to the believer in justification, he comes with blessings in both hands. Forgiveness of sins in one and adoption into the family of God within the other, which adoption includes a title deed to eternal life. In the words of our catechism, on the one hand, when God justifies believing sinners, he pardons all their sins. And on the other hand, he accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight. In other words, the two elements of justification are the forgiveness of sins, which includes the removal of all guilt and of every penalty our sins deserve, and adoption into the family of God, which includes full acceptance with God and the gift of eternal life. Here's what Acts 26, 18 says. God called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light 
and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive two things. In order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. In Romans 6, 7, believers are said to be acquitted from sin. And in Ephesians 1, 6, Paul says that God has freely bestowed his grace on us in the beloved. Fourth basic element. According to Calvin, justification's basis, underline basis, justification's basis is imputation. Therefore, to justify means nothing else than to acquit of guilt him who was accused, as if his innocent were confirmed, said Calvin. Therefore, since God justifies us by the intercession of Christ or the mediatorial work of Christ, he absolves us not by the confirmation of our own innocence, but by the imputation of righteousness, so that we who are not righteous in ourselves may be reckoned or counted as righteous in Christ. Next page. Continuing, Calvin says, For this reason, and this is a great uh, illustration, For this reason, Calvin said, it seems to me that Ambrose, who led Augustine to Christ, that Ambrose beautifully stated an example of this righteousness in the blessing of Jacob, noting that as he did not of himself deserve the right of the firstborn, which was Esau, concealed in his brother's clothing and wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor. Jacob ingratiated himself with his father so that to his own benefit he received his blessing while impersonating another. And we in like manner, no metaphors completely correct, and we in like manner hide under the precious purity of our firstborn brother Christ so that we may be attested righteous in God's sight. Here are the words of Ambrose, Calvin said, that Isaac Smell the odor of the garments perhaps means that we're justified not by works but by faith since the weakness of the flesh is a hindrance to works. But the brightness of faith which merits the pardon of sin overshadows the error of deeds. Merits a wrong word there but that's what Ambrose said. And this is indeed the truth. For in order that we may appear before God's face unto salvation, we must smell sweetly with Christ's odor. And our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. Bottom of the page. Now the question arises, how can a righteous and omniscient God Declare a being righteous and in full conformity to his law when that human being is a sinner. How is it possible for God to be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus when that believer is in fact a sinner? And yet it is true that God justifies sinners, thereby forgiving them of their sins and adopting them into his family. God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. How can God justify someone, declare him to be in conformity to his law, when God knows that that someone is a guilty sinner? How can he do that and remain a just God? The answer is to be found in this biblical word, imputation. 
Since human beings cannot produce that perfect righteousness, which God's righteousness requires him to require in order to be forgiven of sins and adopted into God's family, where is that righteousness to be obtained? Only in Christ. Christ's righteousness is credited, imputed to believers as the basis of our justification with God. As Sproul said, the biblical gospel stands or falls with the concept of imputation. Without the imputation of our sins to Christ, there is no atonement. Without the imputation or crediting of Christ's righteousness to us, all the infused grace we have will not save us. God demands of us a righteousness greater than any we can produce. Therefore, if we are to give God that righteousness, it must be a righteousness outside and apart from us, credited or imputed to us by God himself, a righteousness that we can count as our own and offer in the place of our, our unrighteousness to God for justification, as Paul wrote in Romans 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ in all who believe. Sproul. The righteousness by which I am declared righteous is one that was achieved and merited before I was even born. It is the righteousness of another, even Jesus Christ the righteous. His righteousness is not my righteousness intrinsically. It becomes mine only by forensic imputation. It is a righteousness that counts for me, and it is reckoned to my account but it was neither achieved nor wrought by me. Skip a paragraph. Imputation is fundamental to the gospel of Christ, so that without it we have no gospel. The word is used with reference to three acts of God in the history of the human race. First, Adam's sin was imputed to all his descendants, that is, the entire human race whom he represented in the covenant of works. The sin of the one man Adam is counted or imputed as the sin of all human beings. Second, all the sins of God's people have been imputed to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God reconciled us to himself by the cross of Christ, by imputing our sins to Christ. Because of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, God did not count our trespasses against us, because he made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He does not simply overlook our sins, for he is a God of perfect justice. Rather, he does not reckon or count our sins against us. He removes our guilty status 
that made us liable to his punishment, thus forgiving us of our sins. He reckoned our sins not to us, but to the sinless Christ, our substitute. First part of the next paragraph by Philip E. Hughes. God made him, that is Christ, to be sin. That is to say that God the Father made his innocent incarnate Son the object of his wrath and judgment for our sakes, with the result that in Christ on the cross, the sin of the world is judged and taken away. Thus, in the great transaction of salvation, God imputed our sins to Christ rather than imputing them to us. Third, Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. Once again, we go to 2 Corinthians 5.21 to see this truth. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's death reconciled us to God because the sinner's sins are imputed to Christ and the spotless perfection of Christ's perfect life is credited to us with the consequence that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now here's a great quote by John Calvin in a book I recommend you get. Uh, there was a cardinal named Sadolet. That's one of the reasons I don't like French. You, you don't pronounce the words like they spell. In West Virginia, we call him Sadolet. Uh, Sadolet was a, a, a cardinal that wrote a letter to Geneva, Switzerland to try to get them back into the arms of Rome. Geneva had already fired Calvin. There was nobody uh, 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 that had the ability to answer Sadolet. He was so brilliant. And so they humbled themselves and asked Calvin to to come back to Geneva so he could answer this letter. And Calvin was humble enough to come. And the series of letters between the, uh, Calvin's answer to Sadolet is a great evangelistic book. It is one of the best books I know of you can give to people to show them how to be saved. And it's still available. It's a short little paperback book. I highly recommend it to you. And here's what Calvin says in that book. Then, that is, when a man has been brought under conviction of his sin and its deserts, we show that the only haven of safety is in the mercy of God as manifested in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. As all mankind are in the sight of God lost sinners, we hold that Christ is their only righteousness, since by his obedience he has wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice appeased the divine anger. By his blood washed away our stains by his cross born our curse, and by his death made satisfaction for us. We maintain that in this man is reconciled in Christ to God the Father by no merit of his own, by no value of works, but by gratuitous mercy. That has a tremendous impact upon a person who knows himself to be a sinner and in whose heart the Holy Spirit is working. And I will take the time to give you an illustration of a more simple uh, presentation of that very truth in Ukraine. Several years ago, I went to Ukraine for a couple of weeks to preach and uh, with Wayne Rogers, and uh, we had interpreters. Now, finding somebody that spoke English fluently and Ukrainian fluently and understood Christian language was almost impossible. So my interpreter was this woman who was a humanistic public school teacher. 
And she was to interpret me while I was preaching. And uh, the whole time I prayed, Lord, I hope she's saying the same thing I'm saying. So one time we were in this big Romanian Baptist church that was uh, the Romanian Baptists were persecuted in the old Soviet Union. And the pulpit was like a crow's nest. And when I stood in the crow's nest by myself, it was crowded. But here this lady stood by me. So now I'm preaching like this. She's standing right here and we're crammed into this crow's nest pulpit. We've got all these hundreds of people out there. And I'm preaching the gospel to them. And uh, I say to the people, uh, we're accepted with God on the basis of what Christ has done and not on any good works in ourselves. I wait. Nothing. I thought, well, maybe I gave her too much to chew on. I'll simplify it. We're accepted with God because of Christ and not because of anything in us. Nothing. Well, now I'm frustrated. So I look over and I go like this. There's tears in her eyes. She said, is that true? So even while she was interpreting the gospel of justification by faith alone made a great impact on her life. 220, third paragraph. It should be emphasized that that righteousness imputed to the believer is the righteousness of Christ's sinless life and atoning death. Christ lived for us, obeying God's law perfectly in our place. And he died for us, taking the punishment God's law required because of our sins in our place. Therefore, the basis of justification is the obedience and sacrifice of Christ. Next page. Justification by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer is not a legal fiction. As some, including the Roman Catholic Church, have claimed. Your whole basis of salvation that God declares a sinner righteous when he knows he's a sinner is a legal fiction. That fiction is God declaring a sinner righteous whom he knows to be a guilty sinner. Robert Raymond says, but this objection is due to a failure to realize that God does not treat the justified sinner as if he were righteous before him when he actually is not. To the contrary, the justified sinner is in fact righteous in God's sight because of the in Christ relationship in which he stands, in which the, the relationship the right, in which relationship the righteousness of Christ is actually imputed or credited to him. Therefore, says Sproul, the biblical doctrine of justification is not a legal fiction. It is a legal reality precisely because it is based on a real or true imputation of real and true righteousness. Neither Christ's righteousness nor its imputation to us is a matter of fiction. It remains the reality of grace. Fifth basic element of justification according to Calvin in the Bible. The instrument of receiving God's righteousness is faith. Calvin says faith of itself does not possess the power of justifying, but only insofar as it receives Christ. We compare faith to a kind of vessel. For unless we come empty and with, 
with the mouth of our soul open to seek God's grace, we are not capable of receiving Christ. Faith, he said, is only the instrument for receiving righteousness. He said, why then are we justified by faith? Because by faith, we grasp Christ's righteousness, by which alone we're reconciled to God. Or as Acts 10, 43 says, of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sins. Galatians 1, 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Romans three twenty eight. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Top of 224. The rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century over against the sacramental system of the merits of Roman Catholicism, as we saw yesterday, was sola fide, Latin for by faith alone. The word alone is essential to the gospel of salvation, for without it, room could be made for additional requirements. Faith in Christ and in something else man does would then become the instrumental, uh, instrumental cause of salvation. However, faith in Christ alone is the only means by which we receive Christ and his righteousness for our salvation. Faith is the only means for receiving, not faith plus something else. Faith in Christ is the instrument by which justification is received. It's not the cause or basis of justification. The cause is the free grace of God. And the basis is the righteousness of Christ in his obedience and sacrifice imputed to us. Faith contributes nothing toward our justification. It is purely receptive of Christ, our righteousness. Believing is an act of a receiver, not of a procurer. That is, faith does not cause, bring about, or effect justification. It humbly receives it. Faith is the open, empty, outstretched hand that receives the righteousness procured by Christ for the believer. No one is justified by God until he believes in Jesus. And it is only those who believe in Jesus whom God justifies. Second paragraph. Gospel tells us that we are justified by faith, through faith, of faith, but never does the original Greek and Hebrew tell us that we're justified on the basis of faith, on account of faith, or because of faith? We're not justified because of faith in Jesus. We're justified because of the life and atoning death of Christ. We're justified on the basis of Christ and because of him, not because of anything in us. Faith is the instrument. The New American Standard Bible, which I recommend, has a glaring and inexcusable mistranslation of Philippians 3.9, which compromises the doctrine of justification with reference to its basis. Philippians 3.9 has Paul saying that he does not have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
This rendering of Philippians is both theologically and exegetically unsound. The righteousness that comes from God wherein we stand, accepted by Him, is not based on our believing or on anything we have done, do, or ever will do. It's based solely on the obedience and satisfaction of Christ imputed to us. This mistranslation gives the believer grounds to boast in his believing as the reason and cause along with Christ of his salvation, flatly contradicting the words of Jonah that salvation is of the Lord from first to last. Faith merits nothing. Faith is not the basis of salvation. It is not faith that saves, nor is it faith in Christ that saves. It is Christ who saves through the instrumentality of faith. Christ is the basis of our salvation because he has merited for us, uh, merited for us to whom he gives the gift of faith to receive it. Moreover, this rending of the New American Standard Bible is exegetically incorrect. The phrase translated on the basis of faith is in Greek, epitapiste. Now, are you impressed with my Greek? That is, it is the preposition epi with faith in the dative sense. Now, if you don't know Greek, you sleep for a few minutes, and this is for preachers. Although epi, the, the preposition, is sometimes followed with the genitive case. How many people don't know what I just said? Don't worry about it. Although epi is sometimes followed with a genitive case and can be translated on the basis of in such instances, when epi is followed by the dative case, as we have in Philippians 3, 9, it denotes the time or matter of an action and cannot or should not be translated on the basis of. All I'm showing is proving to you that it should not be translated on the basis of faith. The Greek prepositional phrase in Philippians 3, 9 should be translated at the time of faith or upon believing or in connection with faith, all of which translations indicate that faith is the instrument of justification, not its basis or cause. Christ's righteousness is given to us in the moment of our believing in Christ. It should be noted that some forms of Arminianism teach that we're saved on the basis of faith because God lowered his demands on us for salvation from obedience to the laws of God in the Old Testament to the one command of faith. Therefore, the Arminian gospel teaches justification by works, that is, by the work of faith. Moreover, it, does not, it is not unusual to read some representatives of the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision using the phrase, on the basis of faith. For example, Michael Crawford writes that Abraham was reckoned righteous on the basis of faith. And James Dunn wrote, if we have been accepted with God on the basis of faith, then it is on the basis of faith that we're acceptable. Where's Christ and all that? Sixth basic element, justification is not based on good works, faithful obedience to the law of God, anything we do. And I'll just quote to you. A couple Calvin. Arrogance arises from a foolish persuasion of our own righteousness. Whoever thinks that he has anything at all of his own rises up against God and casts a shadow on his glory. There never existed any work of a godly man which, if, if examined by God's stern judgment, would not deserve damnation. All our righteous deeds are foul in God's sight unless they derive a good odor from Christ's innocence. Now, one of the best 
explanations I've ever heard about why good works won't save you, why faithful obedience to the Word of God uh, merits you nothing was by W.G.T. Shedd, a 19th century Calvinistic theologian. He said this. He said, whereas good works and obedience to God have their role in the Christian life, in, in justification, good works are good for nothing. Because good works don't bleed. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Well, people tried to use the uh, book of James against Paul to refute Calvin. The Roman Catholic Church, uh, bottom of page 227. The Roman Catholic Church, the new perspective on Paul, the federal vision, disagree with Calvin's interpretation of James 2, 17 and 24, which say, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, how is this harmonized with Romans 3.28? But we maintain that a man is just justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, put those side by side. James said, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul said, but we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Do we have a contradiction here? The Roman Catholics would set James over against Paul to try to refute Calvin. And here's how Calvin dealt with the issue. He said, I deny that the statement of James, which they persistently thrust at us like Achilles' heel, affords them the slightest support. Those who by true faith are righteous prove their righteousness by obedience and good works, not by a base and imaginary mask of faith. In other words, he says, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That's how he puts Romans and James together. And what he says is, James is saying, it's not a mere profession of faith that justifies, but if it's real faith, it's going to show itself in a life of obedience. It's not that life of obedience that justifies. It's not that life of works. It's faith that justifies, but it is a faith that shows itself in obedience. And that's how, how Calvin, to summarize this, and I hope you read all of it because Calvin's far better than I am. Uh, that what Calvin says is Romans 3 says we're justified by faith alone. And James says, but we're justified by faith that is not alone. That's not a sheer and empty profession of faith. But it is a faith that manifests itself in good works and in obedience to God. One last thing. Page 232. Calvin has a great deal to say about the relationship of justification and sanctification, which, uh, which are inseparable, uh, but not in our day. Have you ever heard of the carnal Christian heresy that says the important thing is asking Jesus to be your Savior when you become a Christian and he'll forgive you your sins? And it would be good to receive him as your Lord, but you don't have to receive him as your Lord, just Try to do that someday if you can, but, but asking Jesus to be your Savior is all that you need to get in. Uh, so there is this separation of Jesus as Savior and Lord, a separation of justification and sanctification. But yet the Bible teaches, and we're going to see in Calvin, that everybody whom God justifies, he sanctifies. 
and that sanctification is a proof of justification. Now, what all that just, what I just said was that the moment you believe in Jesus, God forgives you of your sins and adopts you into his family and credits Christ's righteousness to you. At the same time, he begins within you a process called sanctification of the Holy Spirit in your heart, confirming you more and more into the image of Christ. So in justification, God declares you righteous. In sanctification, you have this lifelong process of God making you righteous. They're never separated in the scriptures. Everybody whom God justifies, he sanctifies. And sanctification is the proof of justification. And if you're not being conformed in the image of Christ, God has not yet declared you righteous and you've never yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Calvin puts these two things together. But let's, let's hear his words. Bottom of page 232. Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we principally, uh, we principally receive a double grace. Namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious father. And secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. So what does it mean to receive Christ? It means to receive Christ as the basis of your justification, that is, as the forgiveness of your sins and adoption into God's family, and to receive Christ as the sanctifier, the basis of your sanctification. So that Christ is not only the basis of the forgiveness of your sins, He is the basis, the reason why God sends the Holy Spirit into your life. To sanctify you more and more every day. Page 233, second paragraph. A just life is proof of a justified life. We're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, faith is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever, always accompanied with other Saving graces, as Calvin himself wrote, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith which does not work by love, but holding faith to be the only instrumental cause of justification. It is therefore, he said, faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. 235, middle of the page, from Abraham Kuyper's great book, The Work of the Holy Spirit. He said, Our state, our place, our lot for eternity depends not upon what we are, nor upon what others see in us, nor upon what we imagine or presume ourselves to be, but only upon what God thinks of us what he counts us to be, what he, the almighty and just judge, declares us to be. When he declares us just, when he thinks us just, when he counts us just, then we are by this very thing his children, and ours is the inheritance of the just, although we lie in the midst of sin. And in like manner, when he pronounces us guilty in Adam, when in Adam he counts us subject as condemnation, then we are guilty, fallen, and condemned even though we discover in our hearts nothing 
but sweet and childlike innocence. Today's men, women, and youth will not rest in God's judgment and estimation of them. They seek for rest in their own estimation of themselves. This is even true of many professed Christians. They confidently consider themselves saved and right with God because they've had certain experiences or felt certain emotions or because they think of themselves as less sinful than perverts and abortionists. All of these attitudes have one thing in common. They insist on determining their own standing with God according to their own accounting and assessment rather than according to what God counts them to be. They prefer self-justification to divine justification. They insist on justifying themselves in their own eyes rather than being justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Self-justification damns the person guilty of it because it is based on that person's faith in himself. Justification by God through faith in Christ saves us forever because it's based on the perfect life and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You and I are not what we think we are, nor what we say we are, nor what we are even convinced we are. We are what God says we are. And God has declared what he thinks of every human being. In our fallen and unbelieving condition, we stand before him and are declared by him to be guilty and condemn sinners, regardless of what we think of ourselves. By faith in Christ alone, we stand before him and are declared by him to be justified forever, regardless of what we have done or ever will do.